Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. This morning we are uh, finishing a sermon series that's been going on through the month of March. It's a what we call a Q&A sermon series where I have been seeking to answer questions that have been submitted by you, the congregation. And... Um, been really good questions. I appreciate the good questions. If you're interested in hearing a sermon or an answer to one of these questions that you happen to miss, you can go to our website. Those sermons are posted there so you can hear those and you can see what the topics have been. Um, Today, the um, question before us is, and my slide is not advancing for some reason, Uh, today the question is certainly the most difficult, challenging question. Uh, of this series, and the question is this, what happens to people who have never heard the gospel? What happens to people who live in areas of the world where, for whatever reason, the gospel has not reached them? They don't get an opportunity to hear about Jesus. They don't have the opportunity to believe in His name. And if you were here at our um, missions conference a few weeks ago, Uh, you'll know that based on the statistics that I gave that this would be millions of people we're talking about uh, in the world who haven't heard the gospel. And so this question is is very often asked, and it should be asked because it's a good question, and it's one that deserves some extended time in reflecting on. So this message is going to be primarily kind of explanatory just trying to work through this as we look to the Scriptures and um, seek to base our answer on what God has revealed to us in His Word. Um, If you're troubled by this question, that's good. That means you're taking it seriously. That means you're understanding the significance of this. It is a, a troubling question. It's a distressing notion to think that there are millions of people who never hear about Jesus. And for some of you, this might be one of the reasons you're not even a Christian. Because as you think of the implications of this, you you just cannot give yourself to a God who would allow people to go their entire lives and never hear about the hope of eternal life. Um, At the very least, it might keep you from really giving yourself wholeheartedly to the Christian faith, devoting yourself to Jesus without hesitation, because... To go the whole way and believe things like there are people going to hell because they've never heard of Jesus, that just seems so extremist. And perhaps you're just slow to really embrace that. And so, yeah, you might be a Christian, but you kind of hope people don't find out. (laughs) Kind of a closet Christian. Because of questions like this. Well, as we get started, I want to share with you a a quote that's going to kind of set the tone for this. This is Flannery O'Connor. She was a a fiction writer in the early 1900s, um, Christian, who said that the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. And I think that is something that's worth keeping in mind, because when we hear troubling things, it's easy for us to conclude that because we don't like it, that somehow we can make it go away. You know, I don't like the fact that the Holocaust occurred back in the 1940s and millions of people were sent to gas chambers. I mean, that's just a distressing, horrible thing to contemplate. 
But the fact that I'm troubled about it doesn't change the fact that it happened. My feeling about that has nothing to do with whether it was historical. And that's what Flannery is getting to here. Um, we can't change truth by how we feel about it. So although our hearts might rightfully react in a certain way to some things I'm going to say here today, that doesn't mean they're not true. So I think that's something that's worth keeping in mind. Um, Romans 10 is a passage that, that does deal with this quite, I think, specifically. This question, what about those who've never heard the gospel? And so that's the passage I'm going to read to you, verses 13 through 17. Um, if you have your Bibles, won't you please stand? And I will read these verses from God's holy word to us. Romans 10, starting with verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on whom, excuse me, on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? They have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. God, would you please grant wisdom and um, understanding and care to this topic and help me to explain the teaching of your word in a way that is true to its intent, in a way that honors you, and in a way that gives us a deep heart of compassion uh, for those who are lost apart from Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> uh, let me just say before I forget, there's a really a wonderful book called Faith Comes by Hearing. An entire book devoted to this question, I recommend this to you. Faith comes by hearing. Some of the things I'll say have uh, been helped by that. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to do the sermon a little differently. Romans 10, what I just read to you, is the passage. I'm not going to get to that passage actually until the third point, because there are some other things that I think by way of preliminary considerations that need to be laid down first before we can understand what Paul has just said to us in Romans 10. So I'm going to give you two points to get us ready for Romans 10. And the first point uh, is this. Humanity, according to the Scriptures, is profoundly lost. Spiritually speaking, men, women, and children, members of the human race, are profoundly lost. They're, they're in a, in a, spiritually speaking, in a very bad condition. And, and the reason I want to make this clear is because I, I think here's how the typical reasoning goes, and, and here's what makes it hard for people as they deal with this question, is they begin with a false premise. And the false premise is this, that people are basically good. People are basically good. And because they're basically good, they have a right to hear the gospel. 
And if they don't hear the gospel and the gospel doesn't get to them because they're basically good, that means that some injustice has been done to them. They haven't been treated fairly. So that reasoning begins with this assumption. People are are basically good and they're kind of in a neutral position before God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is very clear. And we're going to look at another passage in in Romans. I, I think, are you changing for me, Drew? Okay, so I'll just kind of go like that, and then you'll know. All right. Um, Here's Romans 1. So, same guy who wrote Romans 10 wrote Romans 1. That's Paul. And it says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For for His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been (coughs) clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." So according to this passage, it is not the case that people are basically good, but quite to the contrary, the human race is under the wrath of God. And the reason why is because according to this passage, everybody at some level knows God because His attributes, His divine, eternal power and divine nature are perceived, they're known that through the created order, people know who God is. They know what He's like, and it has been clearly revealed to them. But people have reacted to that knowledge by suppressing that truth, it says. Can you go back, please, uh, one? The wrath of God is revealed from against God and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So you can go ahead to the next one. We, we see God, we know who He is, but we suppress the truth in our wickedness, and as the passage ends here, so they are all without excuse standing before God. What this passage is telling us is that humankind is in big trouble before God. We are not a race of innocent people all trying to do our best before God and just hoping that God is going to accept our efforts because we're doing all that we can. That's not what the Bible says. It says that there is a God who is angry against sinners, a God who is full of wrath. Now you say, man, this is a fire and brimstone church. I didn't know that. I'm I'm just telling you what the passage says. Doesn't it say the wrath of God? Isn't that what it said? That's revealed against All these people who are suppressing the truth. So you might think, well, I I just don't think people are that bad. Well, here's an illustration I I often use. Imagine that all of your thoughts, everything that you've ever imagined and thought and intended in your heart throughout your whole life could somehow be projected onto a screen for the whole world to see for your wife to see, and your husband, and your roommates, and your mom, and your dad, so that everybody can see everything you've ever thought. How many of you would be comfortable with that? I'm quite sure that there's nobody in this room who would be comfortable with that. 
And I'm quite comfortable saying there's nobody in the world who would be comfortable with that. Because we all know that in our heart of hearts, even though we haven't gotten around sometimes to having our hands do what our hearts have wanted to do, that our hearts are full of iniquity. Our hearts are full of revenge and anger and hate and lust. We know that. At some level, we know that there is a God who has a right to be angry with us. Now, we might have kind of put that aside or suppressed that. That's what the text says. Maybe you're at the point where you've suppressed that. Now you don't really believe that anymore, but at some point you did. And everybody does. So what do people do to kind of get out from underneath this? How do we kind of, you know, revise this in our minds or kind of make it more acceptable as we think of this question? What about those who have never heard? If there is this thing, the wrath of God, and there are people who never hear about Jesus, well, what about those who who don't hear about Jesus? Well, there's a number of um, options that are provided. One is this. Here's one thing you could do. You could become a universalist. A universalist is one who believes that everybody without exception is saved. So for the universalist, this question of what happens to those who haven't heard is really not that, you know, it's not really a problem. It doesn't matter if people haven't heard because God in the end is going to save everybody. So we don't have to be alarmed by this. Um, There are a lot of people who support this view It just seems to me there are just too many passages in the Bible that cause trouble for this view. Let me just show you one from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, Jesus will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And there are many other passages that say very similar things, saying there, there are going to be people who are condemned and not saved. Universalism it does not square with the whole of biblical teaching. Well, another um, response people will come up with will be something called pluralism. They'll become a, a pluralist. And This is the view that all religions are saved. The idea is we don't have to be too concerned about people who have never heard the gospel because all religions are basically worshiping the same God. We as Christians worship Jesus, and we believe we're saved through what Jesus has done, but all religions, because they're basically the same, are also worshiping Jesus or the true God, whoever that is in some way. So we're all trying to do the same thing, get into the same place. So it doesn't really matter if people are worshiping in other religions and never hear about Jesus, because their religion is going to get them to God somehow. That's a very common, popular view today. This idea, all religions are basically the same. Very interesting book written by a guy named Stephen Prothero. He is a um, religion scholar at Boston University. He's not a Christian. Uh, He claims to follow no religion whatsoever, and yet he says it's absurd to think that all religions are the same. And he's written this. This actually came from the Wall Street Journal. And he says, he says, we accept as self-evident that competing economic systems and clashing political parties 
propose very different solutions to our planet's problems. We don't say, you know, capitalism and socialism are exactly the same. They're all doing basically the same thing. Nobody says that. Yet, when it comes to religion, we jump eagerly down the rabbit hole into a fantasy world in which, like children in Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon, all religions are above average. All religions are basically the same. All religions are basically good. And Prothero is saying that that's just, that's not tenable. It's not reasonable. It's not the truth. Only Christianity has a savior that is a wrath-bearing savior. Only Christianity says that there is a way for you to escape, escape the wrath of God because God himself has taken that wrath upon himself in his son so that you don't have to face it. That's what Christianity offers. Other religions don't offer that. They're not the same. Only Christianity gives us this hope of escaping the wrath of God. So pluralism isn't going to get us out from under this tension. One last thing that people might uh, embrace is called uh, moralism, and that's that all good people are saved. <laughs> so what about those who haven't heard? Well, this view would just say everybody's doing their best, and people who are basically good don't really have to believe in Jesus because God's going to accept their efforts, their sincere efforts to do the right thing. That's moralism. Now, my question to you, if that's what you hold, is simply this. If it's true that people can get to heaven apart from Jesus, just doing the best they can, why did Jesus have to go to a cross? Why did Jesus enter Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday knowing that this dreadful cross awaited him? Why go through all of that pain and agony and humiliation if it was unnecessary for some people who could get to heaven by just doing the best they could? And in addition to that, think of the implications of this. If we're going to say that there's just good people in other parts of the world, they're doing the best they can, they'll get to heaven, it would seem to suggest then that it would imperil them to preach the gospel to them. Because now they're faced with either accepting or rejecting. And if they reject, they're going to go to hell. So let's not even give them the opportunity and just hope that they'll do the best they can and get to heaven on their own. It would just seem like, why are we doing missions? Why are we sending people to preach the gospel to other nations? There's more possibility they're going to be okay by just being moral people. That, that, that doesn't, it doesn't work. And it's not consistent with what we see in, in the scriptures. The, the, the bottom line here, friend, friends, is, is this. The, the, the assumption that so many people make with this question is, is thinking that God is condemning people for not receiving something that was never offered to them. That's the assumption most people make. God's holding people responsible to do something that they never had the opportunity to do. But that's not what we're saying. That's not what the Bible says. God does not condemn people for rejecting the gospel. God condemns people because they're born into this world with hearts that are set against him from the very beginning. God 
condemns people for the knowledge that they have in the created order and their subsequent response to that by suppressing it and holding it down. What the Bible says is that that is worthy of the wrath of God. Here's what um, uh, William Edgar says. Condemnation is not based on hearing the gospel and refusing it, but on knowing God and refusing Him. It's a very important distinction. Condemnation is not based on hearing the gospel and refusing it, although that is certainly worth God condemning somebody, refusing the gospel. But people are condemned before they ever get to hear the gospel because of their knowledge of Him and their suppression of that. That's what Romans 1 is teaching us. So humanity is profoundly lost. We just have to get that. That's what begins to make sense of this whole thing. If we think that humanity is good on itself, then this becomes a problem. But if humanity is lost, then the answer to this question makes more sense. It might not be easier to stomach, but it makes more sense. Second point, uh, balancing this first point, is that God is passionate to save. Again, here's the reasoning. Millions of people die, and presumably, according to this Christian view, um, they die without hearing the gospel and are in trouble and condemned for that. Therefore, God must not care. He's cold, he's sadistic, he's detached. But that also is very inconsistent with what we see throughout Scripture. I could spend an hour giving you passages that support this. Let me give you a few. Here's 1 Timothy 2, 4. This is good, that is to pray for all people. It's pleasing to the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of God. He desires, there's a desire in God's heart that everybody would be saved. Jonah, 4.11, you know the story of Jonah. God comes to Jonah, tells him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, this wicked city. Call Nineveh to repentance. Who's the one who wants to save Nineveh, and who's the one who doesn't want to go in that story? Right? Jonah doesn't want to go. Jonah is running away. And when Jonah finally does go, preaches to Nineveh, and they're saved, Jonah's upset about it. But God is delighted, and at the very end of the book, God says to Jonah, should not I pity Nineveh, uh, Jonah, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? They're completely lost in Nineveh, is what God is saying. And I have pity on them for that, and I want them to be saved. Jonah was the one reluctant, not God. Here's John uh, 3. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's God's ultimate hope, his ultimate desire, is that people would be saved in placing faith in Jesus. One more passage, Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore, his command to the church, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. God is so passionate to save that one of his primary callings to the church is that we would go and spread the message and make disciples and teach people to follow and obey Jesus. Now, you might say to that, 
man, that sounds really presumptuous, you know, just to, to go into the world and try to convert people to your way of thinking. Isn't that presumptuous? I said, that's not presumptuous, that's a privilege. That's a privilege to be entrusted with the message of life and hope for the whole world. And God has given that message to us in the Great Commission. God is passionate to save. He's passionate to save. He is open to receive anybody who will come to Him in faith. It doesn't matter their race or their economic status. It doesn't matter their history or their past. It doesn't matter anything. If they believe in Jesus, they'll be saved. God just wants people to be saved. He loves to save sinners. But the task of taking that message to people is ours. And here's what Jay Gresson Machen says. This is, just, this is a convicting, convicting statement by this man. The Christian way of salvation is narrow only so long as the church chooses to let it remain narrow. If, therefore, this way of salvation is not offered to all, it is not the fault of the way of salvation itself, but the fault of those who fail to use the means that God has placed in their hands. Why, why is it that God has given us, you know, we're Americans, we have so much wealth, so much opportunity, we have this beautiful building, we have the internet, we fly in airplanes, I mean, we've got all of these wonderful tools and luxuries available to us. Ultimately, why does God give us all this stuff? Why are we so blessed? I mean, there's a sense in which God just loves His creatures and wants to bless them. But I think the bigger reason why is because God wants us to use what He's given us to fulfill the Great Commission, to fulfill His passion to save the lost. That's why we're so blessed. That's why we have what we have. Ultimately, in the large scheme of things, that's why. And, you know, there's reason to be... I think encouraged, you know, that the gospel is spreading, and many who haven't heard are hearing throughout the world. It's true. Do you know that in uh, Africa, the continent of Africa, in the last 100 years, the Christian population has grown from 9 to 50 percent in Africa. In Korea, the number of Christians have grown from 1 to about 45 percent just in the last 100 years. And some of you know that similar kinds of revival are going on in China, and we're expecting that probably in the next 100 years, um, similar statistics will be reported about the gospel in China. Well, I want you to know that as a church, you know, we, we are seeking to fulfill this, and we're just one church, and just single churches can only do so much, but I, I want you to know that we believe this, and we're seeking to get the gospel out. And I'm going to show you a short video here from... Um, uh, the Files, John and Sarah File, they're in Tokyo. Tokyo is one of the most unreached cities in the world. And they're there planting a church in Tokyo. And here's uh, just a little information about what's going on there.
John File, that's uh, the missionary, and uh, the Files have actually been here and are going to be on furlough next month, and so we're hoping to uh, schedule them to, to visit here and talk to us. So uh, some of you know them from their past visits here. But, you know, startling statistic, 0.2%, I think I heard that right, are Christian in Tokyo, 0.2% in a city of 35 million. That's a lot of unreached people. So, last point. <clears throat> How do we reconcile this profoundly lost humanity on the one hand with this God who is passionate to save? How do those two come together? And according to the Scriptures, the way that happens is when people place faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. People must place faith in Jesus to be saved. So. Let's finally now get to Romans 10 here. Notice what Paul says, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, that's, that's how a person is saved. It's calling on the name of the Lord. The Lord here is referring to Jesus. It's calling out to Jesus. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I'm lost. I want you to save me. I call out to you to forgive me and save me. 
That, that's, it's really basically that easy, and that's what verse 13 is saying. But then Paul, in verses 14 to 16, he, he gives a series of rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is? A rhetorical question is a question that you ask not to get information, but to make a point. So the questions that Paul asks here are not like he's really trying to find an answer to them. He's trying to make a point. And so what he says in verse 14, after having said that those who call on Jesus will be saved, then he says, but but how are they to call on him whom they have not believed? How can a person call on Jesus if that person doesn't believe in Jesus? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is they can't. And how are they to believe, he goes on, in him of whom they have never heard? How can they call if they haven't believed, but then how can they believe if they've never heard the name of Jesus? Rhetorical question. The answer is, they can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them, if nobody goes and delivers the message to them? They can't. Verse 15, and then how are they to preach unless they are sent, unless local congregations get people together and support them and send them off like the files have gone? How can people go if they're not sent? How can people believe if nobody preaches to them? How can people call on the Lord if they haven't believed because no one's preached to them? The the whole thrust of Paul's argument here is how can a person be saved if they haven't heard the Lord, haven't heard the gospel. This is what Paul's dealing with. How can people be saved if they haven't heard the gospel? They can't. That's what Paul is saying. They can't. Now, there are a lot of different responses to to that, and... We can look through Scripture. We can talk about this. Does Scripture allow some other interpretation of this? Um, So, for instance, people will say, um, what about Abraham? What about Abraham? As a representative of Old Testament saints, we might say. He lived centuries before Christ. He never heard the name of Jesus. And he was saved. Hebrews 11, many other places in the Bible would tell us that Abraham is saved. So, is it impossible then that people can be saved without hearing the name of Jesus? Because that's what happened to Abraham. There's something different about Abraham, though, friends. Abraham believed not just in a generic kind of God out there. Abraham believed, he put his faith in a promised Messiah that was specially and specifically revealed to him, a Messiah who was later to be revealed to be Jesus. Now, there was much that Abraham didn't understand about Jesus that we get the benefit of understanding living this side of the cross. But nonetheless, Abraham was putting his faith in a very specific act of God, a promised Messiah. So, look at this passage here in Galatians 3. It says the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all 
the nations be blessed. Abraham was not saved because he just believed in a God and did the best that he could. He was saved because he trusted the gospel that was preached to him. Genesis 15, 6 says righteousness was credited to him um, as a result of his belief. Well, here's another example. How about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Uh, Cornelius is described in Acts 10 as a a man who, who feared God and prayed. He seemed to be a righteous man. He, he, he seemed to have an interest in God. And some say that Cornelius was, was saved or was some kind of a, maybe a holy pagan or, uh, maybe a Christian without really hearing about Jesus. But I, I don't think that's a proper interpretation of Cornelius' life because you might remember the story. It's Peter who is sent by God. Peter gets a vision and he goes to see Cornelius. And Cornelius got a vision too that said Peter was coming to see him. And in Acts chapter 11, Peter is explaining this to the church. And he's talking about Cornelius. So here's from Acts 11. And, and Peter says, Cornelius told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. So Cornelius was, yes, a God-fearing person, uh, a a person who um, was, a, humanly speaking, a good man. But he wasn't saved until he heard a message and believed in it according to this passage. Bottom line, friends, is Scripture, we can can speculate, we we can get creative, and and we can look and see, maybe there's a way out of this somehow. But in my reading of Scripture, and particularly here in Romans 10, I just don't think the Bible gives us any confidence that the unreached can be saved apart from placing faith in Christ. I don't see it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So how do we respond to this? First of all, this is no reason for you not to believe in Jesus. If you're one who's thinking, you know, I just, I can't accept this unless everybody hears this, I'm not going to believe that myself. If you had cancer and someone offered you a cancer treatment, but you knew that there were cancer patients throughout the world who didn't get the same opportunity, would you refuse that treatment? I don't think you would. It's been offered to you, you take it. The gospel has been offered to you. Take it. Take it. God's been good to get you the gospel. Why would you refuse that? Others might not have heard, but you have. So this is no reason not to believe in Jesus. The second thing I would say is, friends, let's let's be impacted by this. I mean, let's let this impact our hearts. I I heard a story of uh, Francis Schaeffer, and I couldn't verify it, so I'm not sure it's actually true, (laughs) but it illustrates the point. Somebody asked Francis Schaeffer, what about those who've never heard? And all he did was hang his head and weep. That's an appropriate response to this. Not a bunch of high-minded arguments like I guess I've been giving you here this whole sermon, but to respond with an appropriate 
emotional sorrow. I mean, do you hear the guy on the video? He just said, it just breaks my heart, he says, that all these people in Tokyo haven't heard the gospel. It breaks my heart. Does this break your heart? This ought to break your heart. That, that's, that's what ultimately will motivate us to really try to do something about it. Now, it's not up to us, New Life Presbyterian Church, to go save the whole world. <laughs> but we have been given resources, and we have been charged with this task of fulfilling the Great Commission with everything that we can. Let this impact you. And then lastly, I would just say the same thing that I said at the end of the missions conference. Maybe you're called to go. Have you thought about that? Not everybody can go. Maybe even most of us don't go, but we all play a part. We're all involved in some way. We can give of our money to support. We can pray for our missionaries. We can contact our missionaries and encourage them. If you want to know more about how to do that, let us know, and we can tell you. But maybe God is calling your feet to be the beautiful feet that brings good news to the lost. Could, could that be? We have a God who's he's mighty to save. I mean, he, he can do it. He is doing it, and he will keep doing it. And what a privilege, what a privilege it is to be involved in this. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, um, we thank you that although our hearts are breaking at all the lost people throughout the world, we know, oh God, that you always do what is right. There is no injustice in you and that you're a God passionate to save, and you're full of mercy, and you will draw in everyone you intend to save. None will be lost, and we are grateful. We rejoice. Help us to know, Lord, how to fulfill the charge of this passage to take the gospel to those who haven't heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.